Well, if I may as well add a prayer request to your long list this week to pray for. Um, this Friday night, the elders, all the flock shepherds, and many of the leaders of Cornerstone will be gathering together, and we'll be doing our annual strategic evaluation of Cornerstone Bible Church. We'll consider the positive, neutral, negative cultural trends here at Cornerstone. We'll look at our strengths globally. We'll look at our weaknesses, our opportunities, and then our threats. And based upon that, the elders will meet next week and make some key decisions for 2004 in light of our SWOT evaluation. This Friday night, that's a really important meeting. We ask that you would pray for us, all the leaders, that God would grant us wisdom beyond our years, beyond our maturity that we might uh, discern God's will for our church. Also, the uh, some key women leaders will be meeting at um, Gary and Cindy's place. Not Cindy's place. Gary and Cindy's place. And um, they're going to uh, do a SWOT evaluation over women and women's ministry here at Cornerstone. Do the same thing, but their evaluation will be focused on the women. We ask you humbly and uh, faithfully pray for them as well as they seek to shepherd and minister to the women here at Cornerstone. Well, you might be surprised to find out that we are done with John chapter 10, what turned out to be a very lengthy study in the final verses of John chapter 10, as, as we have concluded. And now we are beginning our study on John 11, and I don't want to bind myself to any kind of promise that I cannot keep, but I believe we'll spend no more than three weeks in John 11. But such is the adventure and expository study of the Word of God. You never know how the Holy Spirit will lead. But from my study thus far, maybe a three-week three study. We'll get through maybe up to verse 26 this morning. Um, we would have wanted to go through verse 35 on our Lord's tears but it would just prove it would prove to be too lengthy of a study. So we will conclude our study most likely in verse twenty six. Now just a quick brief um, contextual con background. John seven through ten, if you remember, was all um, all took place in one geographical location, the city of Jerusalem. Remember our Lord was near Galilee in John seven? And the Feast of Dedication was taking place, and his brothers went down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and they knew that he was a wanted man, and they, had, they told him, if you want to be a public figure, you need to go now. But Christ went secretly by himself privately to Jerusalem, and starting with John 7 all the way through 10, we find the discourse, teaching, and ministry, and the healings of Christ in Jerusalem. And then we also find that our Lord is utterly and vehemently rejected by the elders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, essentially by the, the leaders of Jerusalem, leaders of Israel. Jesus is rejected as the Messiah. Um, he is running away from murderous threats at the tail end of John chapter 10. And here we are in John chapter 11, he is a two days journey away, 
and our Lord is going back. Our Lord is returning to the hornet's nest. He's going back to the heart of Jerusalem all over again. And it's for his beloved friend, Lazarus. It is fitting that after this intense rejection of Christ in John 10, that in the very next chapter we see Christ's glory. We see his power, authority, and majesty in the very next chapter. Even though he met with incessant opposition and hate, our Lord's glory is undiminished. There's a sense where our God didn't want to wait for His Son to be glorified. He didn't want to delay before His majesty is proven before the leaders of Israel. So there's almost a sense where God orchestrated the events. Uh, here in John 11, Lazarus' sickness, his death, and Christ coming back and vindicating His glory before the leaders of Israel all for that purpose. Now, by John chapter 11, if you've been keeping up in our study for the past two and a half years, you will remember that we have studied six miracles of Jesus thus far. Right? You guys remember? Back in John chapter 2, the first sign miracle recorded by the Apostle is our Lord turning water into wine in the city of Cana. The second miracle follows pretty quickly. In John 4:46, our Lord heals the nobleman's son. Remember, uh, that nobleman said, Come to my house to heal my son. And Jesus said, Your son is healed. And that nobleman, he takes Jesus at his word. He believes in Christ's word. And he goes, finding out that his son is deep and healed. In John 5, we found the third miracle of Christ, where Christ healed a lame man. In John 6, we we saw the feeding of the 5,000 with bread and fish. In the latter part of John chapter 6, we saw Christ walking on water in His fifth miracle. And then in John 9, we saw the Lord's sixth miracle in the Gospel of John where he cured a man born blind. The raising of Lazarus, here in John 11, is the seventh miracle of Christ. Now, in the Hebraic mind, seven is the perfect number, and it is not a coincidence, I believe, that the Gospel writer John, he selectively chose miracles to prove that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Messiah, to prove that he is God, after the seventh miracle, he chose the most dramatic, the most powerful, the most authenticating miracle performed by Christ, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus. Now you might say, James, but I think I remember reading in the Gospel of Matthew that um, our Lord raised Jairus' daughter from death, and didn't in Luke chapter 7, does it not say that uh, there was a son of a widow who lived in the city called Nain, who was raised from death as well? Uh, why is this resurrection particularly significant? Well, it is because of the length of time that passed 
between his death and his raising. Both of those raisings occurred almost immediately after the person's death. The widow's son, Jairus' daughter, they were still at home. They were still in their deathbed when Christ rose them from, from their death. Lazarus is significant because not just this nearness to Jerusalem, Bethany is only two miles journey east of Jerusalem. So that's Pharisee country, you know, that's Sanhedrin country. But it was a public funeral, and he had been dead for over four days. So later on, Mary says his body is decomposing. He is, I mean, he is dead. The Jews believe that the spirit left the body on the fourth day. Therefore, they understood that if anyone is dead, it is Lazarus. And yet, Christ raising him reveals his singular authority as the Son of God. Now, um, it's worth mentioning that this miracle is not recorded by any other gospel writer. It is only recorded by John. Um, various reasons have been given why the other evangelists did not record the significant miracle. If this miracle was so significant, why didn't Matthew or Mark or Luke write about it? Well, some propose that John was written later on in church history, that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing their gospels, Lazarus was still alive, and for them to have written about this miracle would brought, brought upon him greater opposition, persecution, and even death. So in a way to protect Lazarus, they didn't write about this account. Secondly, the first three gospels were written to people in Judea, and it was such a fantastic miracle that it was well known. But because John is writing to a broader Gentile audience, he included it so that they might know what Christ did on this particular day in the city of Bethany. Well, briefly do a background on the purpose of this miracle. Threefold purpose of this miracle. First of all, the miracle Lazarus' raising as with all miracles of Christ, reveals the glory of God. Reveals the glory of God. I hope we know that the hero of this passage is not Lazarus. Right. He didn't do anything. He just got sick and died. There's no heroism or achievement in that. There's no... The hero of the story is not Mary or, or Martha, though we can learn from their faith. They're not the central character of this narrative. The hero of this narrative is Christ and God. It is for their glory this narrative was recorded. In John 9, 3, when Christ saw the blind man was born blind, Christ said, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Christ healed so that God might reveal himself. John 11.4 This illness does not lead to death. Lazarus is sick. He will die. But this is for the purpose, for the glory of God, and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Secondly, it openly and powerfully points to the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, 
In John 10.30, our Lord spoke in word, I and the Father are one. And He said, If I do not do the work of the Father, do not believe Me. If I do not perform miracles, reject Me as the Messiah. But if I do the work of God, you need to submit to the truth. And so in John 10.30, we see Christ's word. And in John 11, we see Christ's deed. He performs a, a miracle that can only be performed by God Himself. Because God alone is the author of life. I mean, we talked about it last week, right? It's vanilla men. Plain old Savon's ice cream men. They can do certain tricks. They, the guy who went 68 years without eating and relieving himself. Or David Blaine, you know, he says, pick a card, any card, right? Or he does, I don't know, he levitates, or he does tricks where there's a car on the other side of the window, and people are just amazed, and they make TV shows out of him, right? Well, well, look at Christ. All these men, all great men and women throughout history, no one has conquered two things, right? Death and taxes, right? <laughs> the common denominator for all men. Death and taxes. Well, Christ conquered one at least. Christ conquered death. Uniquely proving that His Word wasn't empty. That His words were true. That He and the Father is indeed one. This sign uniquely points to the deity of Christ. Because He conquered death. Now, in, in our sanitized 21st century world, Death is something that is unfamiliar to us. Death is something that's kind of not clear. It's not familiar to our modern world. But as we grow in age, um, death is waiting for every single one of us. In a hundred years, every single person in this room will be dead. You know, my, my personal philosophy is, I can be late to weddings, and I often, unless I'm presiding, right? But it's not for dying. I don't mind being late to weddings, right? They don't, they don't know if I'm there or not. As long as I make it at the end, greet the couple at the end, and give them a gift, they're happy. But I will, I, I will not be late to funerals. I will not be late to funerals. Um, Solomon said, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of praise. And going to funerals is good. It reminds me of my mortality. It reminds me of my humanity and the consequence of sin reminds me of the end of all men and how we live for Christ and Christ alone, that He alone is eternal. And Christ conquered that. Christ overcame that, proclaiming indeed that He is indeed God. It vindicates John 10.30, John 11. It vindicates verse 30. And thirdly, it condemns the sinfulness of man's unbelieving heart. It, it reveals the utter hardness, depravity, unbelief of men. It reveals that the reason people reject Christ, and I said this in the second hour last week, it is not an intellectual reason. It's not because of lack of evidences. It's not because of lack of miracles or lack of proofs. John 11 tells us that the reason people reject Christ is because of sin. Here we see 
the leaders of Israel, seeing a man dead for four days come to life, and they all verify it's true. There is no disagreement. There is no uh, debate as to whether what really happened. They're all in agreement. Lazarus was dead, and now he's alive, and Christ raised him. But what is their conclusion? Their conclusion is, they plot against the murder of Christ. In fact, they add a person to their laundry list of hitmen, or, or wanted men, right? Jesus, the disciples, and they add Lazarus to that list, John 12, verse 10. The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. On account of him, many of the Jews were going over Jesus and putting their faith in him. It reveals the hardness that is in the heart of the uh, leaders of Israel, of the unbelieving world, their utter disbelief because of sin. Well, let's get to our text this morning, John chapter 11. We will navigate through this chapter in five parts. First of all, we will look at the background of the miracle, verses 1 through 6. And then we'll look at our Lord's dialogue with His disciples, verses 7 through 16. And then verses 17 through 37, we'll look at our Lord's dialogue with Martha and Mary. Part 4 is the miracle itself, verses 38 through 44. And then verses 45 through 57 are the results. So five parts. Background, our Lord's dialogue with the disciples, our Lord's dialogue with Martha and Mary, the miracle itself, and the results. Well, turn with me, if you haven't done so already, to John chapter 11, verse 1. And we'll begin with the background of the miracle. Apostle John writes us and he tells us that a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and our sister Martha. Now Lazarus is a significant name for this man. It comes from the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means the one whom God helps, the befitting name for Lazarus, because God helps this man, helps him from death, uh, it's a very insignificant village, Bethany. It's about two miles east, over the hill of Mount of Olives, two miles from Jerusalem. A small town, hometown for Mary and Martha. Um, verse 2, John reminds the reader of the identity of Mary. He says that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, this act was very familiar to the readers. John records it in chapter 12, but he previews it and reminds them of this act in John chapter 11. Because they are loved by Christ, verse 3, the sisters sent to him a note saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The Greek word for ill here implies that the sickness was very serious. In a word, Lazarus was dying. They knew that time is of the essence. He, he's not going to last 
within more than 24 hours. They immediately thought of Jesus. He had healed many strangers. He had healed Samaritans, even Gentiles. Maybe he will heal our brother, whom he loves. Yes, we know it will be difficult for Christ to come back to Bethany because there was a plot against his life in Jerusalem. But maybe Christ will come. Consider the note. They don't ask Jesus to come. They, they might think that's presumptuous. That's asking too much. Asking him to come to Bethany. But they just let Christ know, Lazarus whom you love is sick, is severely ill. Their thoughts are, maybe if Christ were to come, they would be able to heal him. Now, their faith was somewhat incomplete. It, it is revealed in verse 21, verse 32. Their thoughts were, if Christ were to come, they could heal him. They didn't think about raising him from the dead, but they had thought he would be able to heal, heal Lazarus. They gave this message to Jesus, hoping for a miracle. Verse 4, the reply is, Our Lord says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Our Lord said, The whole point of Lazarus' sickness is not for death, but it's for the glory of God. Now notice in verse 4, that it was for the glory of God and for the glory of the Son of God. Both and. Our Lord is saying that you do not glorify the Father unless you glorify the Son. And also, you do not glorify the Son unless you glorify the Father. Biblically, it is not scriptural to think that you can believe in God apart from Christ. God does not receive glory from someone who is not also glorifying His Son. John 5.23 Christ said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So I was reading my paper yesterday, Saturday edition at LA Times, the California section, there was a story about Fuller Seminary. They have launched a federally funded project for making peace with Islam. It is called the Fuller Project. And they affirm that Muslims and Christians have a mutual belief in one God. Their creed and their belief is that Muslims, Jews, and Christians worship the same God but just have different understandings of the divine nature. Well, John 11.4, John 5.23 categorically reject this teaching. This is not at all biblical. The Quran clearly rejects Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Judaism rejects Jesus as the promised Messiah. As Christians, Jesus is central to the worship and glory of God. 
we cannot glorify and worship God apart from Christ. And vice versa. That idea is not scriptural. Christ said, this death occurred for God's glory and also my glory. Now move on to verse 5. In verse 5, John adds his own commentary here in verse 5. He does this so that we would not misunderstand verse 6. Verse 6 says, okay, what's for? Jesus, Jesus received this note, last is 6. Verse 6, what does Jesus do? He waits two days. And you read that passage and you go, wait, what's, what did I miss here? Alright? What if, you know, you, you left a message in my voicemail and say, James, I'm sick. I need you to come and pray, pray for me. And I hear the message and I tell my wife, yeah, you know, Daniel Pio is sick. You know, I'll go next month, right? <laughs> I'll see if I can squeeze him in, you know, three weeks from now. I mean, legitimate for Daniel to question James as a good shepherd. See, you heard I was sick and you waited three days? And what's up with that? Well, same thing here. Our Lord hears that Lazarus is deathly ill and then he waits two days. Well, verse 5, John explains. It makes it clear that Jesus loved Lazarus, loved Martha, and loved her sister. Our Lord had spent many hours in the home of uh, these three siblings. It was somewhat of a home base apart from Jerusalem. After a hard day of rebuking the Pharisees, he would come two miles away and rest at the home of uh, these three siblings and go back and rebuke them again. And so he loved them. But verse 6, there's a contrast. NIV has the right sense of the contrast in verse 6. But when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right. He stayed longer where he was. That helps us understand that the delay was not due to a lack of love for Lazarus. His delay did not mean he didn't love them. It was only a delay of time because that would bring more glory to God. Our Lord knew that in a way he was ministering to the crowds. He was ministering to the Pharisees. Specifically, he was preparing his own disciples for the cross. For, for the disciples, for them to see Christ heal another man would be a great miracle. But I mean, they've seen Christ do a lot of good things. But our Lord knew, and that's why he was glad to wait two days. Because when his disciples saw a dead man for four days rise from the tomb, it would confirm their faith all the more and prepare them for the crucifixion. So he waits two days. The 30-mile journey on the east side of Jordan to Bethany. So it took one day for the message to arrive to Christ. Our Lord, on the other side of Jordan, waits two days. He takes the 30-mile journey back. Four days. So it takes four days. And so Lazarus apparently dies soon after the message was sent. And so after two days, Christ says in verse 7, Let us go to Judea again. Now, 
Here is our Lord's dialogue with the disciples, our second section, verses 7 through 16. After Christ says this, the disciples said to him again, Rabbi. I mean, just the tone of what they're saying. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? The disciples were confused about the Lord's intentions. They didn't understand why he wanted to return to the very place where his life would be threatened. Not only that, John 10.42 tells us that many were believing in Christ on the other side of Jordan where John administered. There are hordes of people seeking Christ out. Why leave this open door of ministry to go back to the hornet's nest, to Jerusalem, and possibly be murdered? Our Lord answered them, verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Our Lord is a masterful teacher. He exhausts every opportunity to teach spiritual truth and responds to the disbelief and the fear of the disciples. He responds by giving them a powerful and bold illustration, the illustration of a traveler. Now the Jews divided the day from sunrise to sunset into two parts, sunrise and sunset, two parts. Um, our Lord is saying here that there is a lot of time for people to travel in the daytime, 12 hours in the day, 12 hours at night, it is dark, you will stumble. So every man has 12 hours to travel. And so while it is daytime, you should be traveling. You should be moving. You should be working and serving. Because when it's night, you can't travel anymore. Because it is dark, you will stumble. And he applies this to his own life. He's saying, God has given him an allotted time to serve him, to do his will. And though it is the 11th hour, the daylight is dimming, the sun is setting for him. Daylight, day is not over. A remnant of it was left. And just as the traveler journeyed on until it was night, it was proper for Christ to minister even until the last hour. It was proper for Jesus to labor until the end. Night of death was coming when work could no longer be done. But while it is day, he must do the Father's will. And because God is sovereign, God knows Christ's end. He had nothing to fear, not even the Jews in Judea. Because his life is in the hands of the Father. Therefore, he was safe in God's hands. And so without fear, he, was, he went to the midst of his foes, trusting in God the Father. Our Lord was urging the disciples to do the same, and urging us to do the same thing. This passage teaches us not to live life out of fear, not to live life out of worry or anxiety, because God has allotted time for each and every one of us 
And that time is in the hand of God. The day of our death. No one takes it from us. It is God who takes it at His appointed time. And until that moment, our calling is to do the Father's will, is to serve Him. And I remember thinking about this um, several weeks ago. Um, it was um, morning I was leaving for Kazakhstan. I think I told Bob and Mike this story. Um, got up early in the morning. You know, got ready, got dressed. Uh, we woke up Elizabeth right before we left. So I went into Elizabeth's room and I saw her sleeping, laying there. Got a patter on the back. And um, I started and I prayed before leaving. And, uh, you know, I was getting ready. And I was kind of going to Kazakhstan. I kind of didn't know what to expect. Definitely there was a sense of fear, sense of, you know, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's going to happen when I go to Kazakhstan? But truth like this in the scriptures encourages my heart. That there isn't a lot of time that God has given me to serve Him. And once in God's sovereignty, God takes my life. I can't serve God any longer. That's it. I can't preach another sermon. I can't pray another prayer. I can't evangelize to another soul. I can't lead another Bible study. I can't do anything. Work is done. Life is done. So while it is day, I must serve God. That's the imperative. While I'm able. And all the more because God has prescribed the bounds of my life. I can't shorten it. And I can't lengthen it. God has fixed the calendar of my life. He knows the exact number of days I will live on earth. Therefore, myself, every believer in this room, we must not be paralyzed by fear from serving Him. We must serve Him while it is our time. We will not live a minute longer, a minute shorter, we need not fear because God is in control. Because of this assurance, our Lord went to Jerusalem. Teach the Word of God to do God's will. And it's with this assurance that we are to do God's will as well. Now let me just do a little tangent uh, address here to non-believers that might be joining us today. There's also a serious application here to a, to a non-Christian. That if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you need to realize that time is never extended for no man. God doesn't extend time for anyone. God has bound, God has set boundaries, not just for Christians' lives, but non-Christians as well. God has given you a set amount of days to trust in Christ. And after that day is over, it is too late. There is no second chance. There is no another opportunity. You can't make up that work and trust in Christ at that time. I shared this story about a year ago. Um, several years ago on ABC News, they reported an unusual work of modern art. It was a chair 
that was affixed to a shotgun. Now this modern art display could be only be viewed by sitting in that chair in one minute increments and looking directly into the gun barrel. Now that shotgun was loaded. It was set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next 100 years. So that gun's going to go off. The amazing thing was that people waited in lines to sit and stare into the shell's past. They all knew that that gun would go off at point-blank range at any moment. But they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during their one minute on that chair. Well, that is the reality of people whose sins have not been forgiven. They are permanently sitting in that chair against the gun barrel. And it is not if it will go off. The only issue is when. They think because it hasn't gone off, they think they are safe. They are wrong. God does not extend this time for believers and for unbelievers. The issue is not if, the issue is when. Charles Spurgeon said, man is hanging over the mouth of hell by a solitary plank, and the plank is rotten. If you don't know Christ today, you need to understand that your time is limited. The urgency that we have as believers to serve God should be the same urgency that you have, if you're not a Christian, to trust in Christ. Well, the final one, the final section for today, verses 17 through 37. Our Lord dialogues with Martha and Mary at Bethany. We see the humility of Christ coming to Jerusalem. He didn't have to come. When he had come in verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And again, we know that in Jewish tradition, they believe that the man's spirit left the body in the fourth day. Martha comes, heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. It's a position of grieving, of mourning, of, of, of sitting down and, and mourning over the death of Lazarus. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Our Lord said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha had right doctrine. She had right theology. She had read Psalm 16. She had read Job 19 where Job says, I know I will see my Redeemer. He will stand on the earth though I perish. I will rise again and see him with my own eyes. So Martha, knowing the Old Testament scriptures, unlike the Sadducees, she believed in the ultimate resurrection of the saints. Our Lord said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Notice the temporal significance of verse 25. Martha was saying, I know in the future... He will rise again. Our Lord is saying, I am the resurrection. It's not about the past. 
not about the future. It's about the present. I am the resurrection, and I am life. Anyone who believes in me, though he might die physically, he will live again. For everyone who believes, he shall never die. In fact, in John 8, we studied this, John 8, 51, he said believers will never see death, will never taste death. For Christians, for Christians, death is a secondary experience for us. Think about that. We will never personally experience death. We will see other people die. We will go to countless funerals. But personally, we'll never experience it firsthand. It will always be a secondary experience for Christians. We will never see death. We will never taste death. With our last exhale, we'll die. But with that next inhale, we'll be with Christ. First John, the twinkling of an eye, we shall be like Him. In a split second, when we die here, we will be with Christ. Christ promises that to everyone who believes in Him. Well, we'll spend more time on verse 25 next week with a few final thoughts. Um, for believers, man, I'm really struck by this. Do you believe that God is sovereign over your life? Do you truly believe that you can't lengthen your life? You can't shorten it? That for believers, there is no such thing as risk because God is sovereign, because God is in control. If we're walking in the light, meaning if we're doing, this, doing God's will, then we're safe in His hands. And so we have a lot of time to know Him and to make Him known. And once night comes, we can't do anything to serve God. We can't evangelize. We can't minister. We can't serve. We can't encourage. We can't pray because the night has come. Do you believe this? And does this show by your life? Is there an urgency to make Christ known? Is there an urgency to, to know Him and to make Him known? That's a true proof, right, of doctrinal fidelity. Do you live this out? Do I live this out? Proverbs 28.1 says that the wicked man flees, though no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked, they run away. They waste time. They waste their lives. Meaningless ends. Because they are wicked. But the righteous, they're bold in life. Because they know the God whom they serve. And secondly, unbelievers, non-Christians, if you're here with us this morning, you should realize that time is running out. That every second that passes is a second closer to eternity and a judgment before God who is thrice holy, who knows all of your sins. You know, can you stand before your husband and wife and say, I've never sinned? Do you have the audacity to stand before your parents and say to them, looking into their eyes, I have never sinned. I'm innocent. Well, how much more God, who is omniscient, who knows all, you will stand before Him and give an account. And because you have sinned against God, who is eternal, You'll be separated from Him eternally. Christ says, 
anyone who believes in Christ for their sins will never taste and see that. Promise that is extended to you this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you've your sins are not forgiven by Christ. If you have not trusted Him for salvation, do so this morning so that you might also never taste that, never see that, so that you may also rise with Christ and be with Him forever. Lord Jesus, as we studied John 11 this morning, Lord, soften our dull hearts, open our eyes that are dim, help us to see your glory, your beauty, and your majesty. Lord, may our hearts be attracted to you, Lord, because of your humility and your goodness and your power and authority over death. Lord, you... Model diligence. You model faithfulness and urgent ministry to all the believers here. Lord, may we follow you. You said the foxes have holes, birds of the air, air have nests, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Or in like manner, as we follow you with our crosses, we follow you, knowing that it is still day. It is our time now for us to be serving you, for us to be knowing and making you known. May you be diligent unto you, knowing that when our time comes, we will rise in resurrection and glorified bodies to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.